So I think one of the worst feelings that all of us have experienced at one time or another is, you know, feeling like you're prepared and you're ready for something and then realizing at the last minute you're not and knowing there's nothing you can do about it. So, you know, I've shared before how my senior year of college, one of my last classes, uh, the final exam I thought was at 11 a.m. And I realized at 9.30 a.m. that morning that it was at 8 a.m. And it's just like, that was, so that was great. Uh, this also happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I had a, an engagement party to attend on a Saturday night at 7.30, and I'm someone who cannot be late to anything. And so at 6.50, I get up off the couch and go to grab my keys, and this would, this would get me there about 10 or 15 minutes before the party to make sure I'm early and uh, all that sort of thing. And I go to the front door. I have this bowl near the front door where my keys are supposed to be, and they're not in there. And I'm thinking, no big deal. If they're not here, they're going to be on the kitchen counter. Uh, I'm one of those people that misplaces things all the time, but I have never lost my keys. I don't know how that's worked out. Never lost them. So I'm like, no problem. Go to the kitchen counter. They're not there. At which point I'm like, okay, this is a problem. So I text my wife, Christina, and I was like, have you seen my keys? I don't know where they are. Uh, she had gone out of town earlier that Saturday. She took the kids. They went to the grandparents' house uh, to go to this thing. This thing they're going to go to the next day. And uh, I didn't expect her to say anything other than like, maybe have you checked this place or whatever. And so she responds by saying, oh, well, I used your keys this afternoon when I cleaned the van, but I put them back in the bowl. To which I'm thinking, this is not good because they are not in the bowl. And not only is it not good because in our house, she says, I don't have eyes because I can't find anything. And if she's not here, how am I going to find them? So I start looking all everywhere. I've, I FaceTime her. I cannot find them. 7.30 hits. I feel terrible. cannot find them. I look for those keys for an hour and 15 minutes straight all over the house. And I was mad. And not because like the keys got, couldn't be found. That happens. But I was mad because like, I'm looking at places where they literally, it's, it would be impossible for them to be there. But I ha they, they, live, they have to be here somewhere. And so I'm looking everywhere. Can't find them. They don't go to the party. Uh, Sunday morning, I had to be brought to church. Someone had to bring me to church and bring me back home because I didn't have keys. And I'm stuck at home Sunday afternoon, still looking around the house for the keys because my worst nightmare is for Christina to walk in the house and find them in 30 seconds, right? So I'm looking everywhere. Not there. She, you know, calls me from my grandparents' house. Her and my grandmother make a joke about how they, my grandmother was like, I'd find them in five minutes. And I'm like, well, you're not here, so that's not helpful. And uh, Christina's like, they're not in the van. You know, I've looked all over the van. They're not in the van. So Monday morning comes. I have to be at, here on Monday because I've got some meetings I have to do. And so my mom has to bring me to work. So that's great. And uh, Christina <laughs> is coming back Monday afternoon. And she's going to look for the keys and then tell me, you know, where they are. And she's going to pick me up or something. I forget how I was going to get home. And uh, she texts me. She says, you're not going to be happy. And I'm thinking... My whole prayer is like she finds the keys, but like maybe, maybe it like takes her 10 minutes, right? She can't find it right away. And she says, well, I found your keys. Uh, they were not in the house. They were in my van. And I said, who doesn't have eyes now, right? They were in like the, the, the driver's, like the, the back seat, the, the compartment behind the driver's seat. They were in there. I guess they had fallen there. And I looked everywhere, and they were there the whole time. And I'm like, if you had just looked, that would have saved me a lot of frustration because I would have known that I didn't have them, right? Now, why do I tell you this story? Uh, to let you know that Christina also sometimes can't find things. That's why. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I tell you that story because it's just like, there's nothing quite like, like feeling like you're good and you're, everything's ready to go and you're good to go. And then realizing, oh, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe I'm not as prepared or ready as I thought I was. And today, as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark, I want us to consider this question. And that's how do you know 
if you're faithfully following Jesus. So if you're here this morning and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, how do you know that you're faithfully following him? Now, I'm not asking this question as if, like, am I actually saved? I'm not, that's not the question. Like, Jesus rescued us. He redeems us. Nothing we do earns our salvation. So I'm not asking that. I'm asking from the sense of, as a follower of Jesus, am I living in a way, and am I honoring, in a, honoring him in a way that's actually faithful to how he's called me to live? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I encourage you to stay, uh, stay connected because we're going to address that as well. But if you are a follower of Jesus, just to consider this as we read this, message, this passage. How do I know if I'm being faithful and honoring God the way he actually is asking me to honor him or not? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one around you. You can take and read that. We'll be in page 889 if you'd like to read along. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, if you have been here, we've seen the last couple of weeks, Jesus is healing people. He's forgiving sins. He's performing miracles. And so He's getting a crowd. Crowds are following him everywhere. Uh, Last week, we saw for the first time that he has to preach from a boat because there's crowds like literally trying to touch him and crush him. And so he's, there's so many people he's preaching from a boat, uh, one for amplification purposes and also just to be safe. Uh, And then we also saw last week, the calling of the 12 disciples. And so all of Jesus' 12 disciples are now following him. Uh, Jesus also had people beyond his 12 disciples who followed him around as well. And so his message is beginning to spread. There are crowds everywhere. And of course, we also saw a couple of weeks ago that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are now starting to plot to kill Jesus because they are accusing him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. They are are now plotting to kill Jesus. And this is where we find ourselves, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It says this, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. So again, in this passage, we see another big crowd. Uh, and in this translation, it says that his family heard this. The more literal translation is that those who are with him. And so the connotation here is that, yes, his family, as we'll see at the end of the passage, his family is included in this group that's trying to call Jesus out. But it likely probably also included maybe people that grew up with Jesus, people that knew Jesus and his family, and they are concerned. And so they are asking Jesus to come out. Now, again, our translation also says they set out to restrain him. Uh, in the Greek, it literally means uh, they came out to seize him. They're trying to stop Jesus from doing what he is doing. Uh, Now, we're not told their motivation behind it, uh, but it is likely something to the effect of they are worried, right? Jesus' message has begun to spread. He has gotten crowds everywhere he is going. And what is the primary message of Jesus, right? The kingdom of God. And if you start talking about a kingdom within the Roman Empire, well, the Roman authorities are not going to like that. And of course, the religious leaders, they also do not like that. And so they probably heard some of the commotion and the trouble, and they're likely concerned about what's going to happen to Jesus. And so they are there to try to stop him. And so as we read this text, I think it's just a really quick reminder for us to remember that proximity to Jesus is no substitute for following Jesus, right? So, so his family is physically close to him. They know him, and yet, at least right here, they are missing the point, right? They're trying to get Jesus, maybe with good intentions, they're trying to stop Jesus from doing what Jesus is actually supposed to do. Uh, You even see this with Judas, one of his disciples who ends up uh, betraying Jesus, right? He's as close as it can get, and yet, he's not actually following him. 
Now, for us, we are obviously not physically close to Jesus here on this earth, but there are many things that we can do uh, to make us assume that we're actually close to Jesus, even if we're not actually following him, right? And so you can go to church, and you can pray, and you can give generously, generously, and read your Bible, and love people well. Like, you can do a lot of these things, which are really good things to do, but if you're not doing them for the right reasons, or maybe if you're doing them so that you can maybe justify some things that are not honoring to God in your life, then you're missing the point. You can be close to Jesus or you can do things that are supposed to bring you closer to Jesus, but still not actually follow him and honor him. It, it kind of makes me think about when I was in college, I had a roommate who every month was into something new, like a new hobby, a passion, a side project. And so what would happen is our apartment would get full of his stuff. Like it's just everywhere. It's just like annoying, whatever. And so one day he decides he wants to get into road biking, which is fine and dandy. But now he buys a road bike and he, clean, he leaves it in the hallway of our apartment that's not very big. And I'm like, why are we doing this? It's, you're going to ride it once and it's just going to sit here. Uh, but what actually ended up happening was this is one of his hobbies that actually stuck. And so he started riding this road bike a lot. And then how it goes, you know, if you've got friends or family or roommates or people you spend a lot of time with, your passions become aligned, or at least you talk about things that somebody likes. And so he eventually got one of our other uh, uh, roommates into road biking. And then there was me, and I was like, I don't care about this. Um, I don't, I wouldn't care if I never saw another road bike on the road again. You know, that wouldn't bother me. I'm not against it. But, you know, if you don't, if they don't have to, like, follow, like, the red lights and the stop signs, then I it's not fair. Anyway, but I'm like, so I'm like, I'm not against it, but like, whatever, do your thing. And they wanted me to start road biking. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I'm, I'm not going to road bike. Like, that's not a thing that I have any interest of doing. Uh, but eventually, he was like looking up the stuff on Craigslist. He's like, Dylan, I found you a bike. And it's about 45 minutes away, and it's super cheap. It was like a 1970-something Schwinn, I think. It was a lime green bike. And he's like, this is great. It's cheap. And then he said, and I'll even pick it up for you. Because the, the, they're selling this bike has a really nice saddle on it. Now, a saddle is just a bike seat if you didn't know. And he's like, I don't know if this guy doesn't realize the saddle's really nice, or maybe he doesn't care, but he's like, I will even go pick up this bike for you if I can have the saddle and we'll just change. I'm like, I don't care. Fine, whatever. So he gets his bike. All three of us have bikes now. I maybe rode that bike twice. I can only remember riding it once, but maybe twice on the road, like a significant distance. Like it was nice to have on campus, you know, to get around campus, but for what its purpose was actually meant for, I maybe rode it twice, maybe twice, but I can only remember doing it once. And then maybe about a year later, you know, Christine and I get married. And so I bring the road bike to our apartment and I never rode it again. And it just sat there until I eventually sold it, right? And what happened there is that I was close to my roommates, but I didn't care about it. And so I went through the motions with them. But then when push came to shove, I was like, I do not care about this at all. And so the, the, the challenge for us or the warning for us is to not just assume because I'm doing all of these things that I'm actually following Jesus in a way that's faithful to what he's actually asking me to do. And so the, the text continues in verse 22. It then says this. It says, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So you have family and people close to Jesus who are trying to stop Jesus for various reasons. And then you have these religious leaders who are also here to try to get Jesus. So in verse 22, when it says that they came down from Jerusalem, what this means is that there has been an official inquiry that it has been started into Jesus, right? And so the higher ups of the Pharisees and some of the scribes have obviously heard the reports of what Jesus has done. And so they have sent, sent like an official council to come and try to investigate what is actually happening. And what do they say to him? 
They say that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, uh, the exact meaning of Beelzebul, or how they would have understood it, we don't actually know. Uh, Beelzebul is only used a couple of times, and it's only ever used in the Gospels. Uh, You might be familiar with the term Beelzebub, right? But even that is rarely used in Jewish literature. So we have this idea, but we don't exactly know what they thought of it. Uh, The best idea, at least in this context, is Beelzebul could mean uh, Baal the prince, or Baal's house, or Baal's kingdom. Now, Baal is uh, one of the major gods that the Israelites' neighbors would worship throughout the Old Testament. And so for the Israelites, it became a symbol of a false god or of, of the demonic realm or of like the evil realm because it is not a true god. And so they are, they are calling Jesus Baal or they are calling Jesus Satan. He said, you drive out demons by the ruler of demons. Like you are this bad guy. Now, I think it's just interesting as a side note, what you notice here is that there is actually no dispute by Jesus' opponents, that he, that, that he performs miracles. Their dispute is the source of his power. Even in first century ancient Roman uh, historical text, uh, when Jesus is mentioned, never is he mentioned as not doing the things prescribed to him in the Gospels. They just try to justify, is it magic? Is it demon possession? They never say he doesn't actually do it. They just try to uh, argue the source of his power. I mean, it's even interesting to me, uh, even if you continue to read the Gospels, we'll get to it at the end. I don't know how long it'll take, but we'll get there. Eventually, when Jesus resurrects, and then he's back on earth for 40 days before he ascends back into heaven, what does the scripture say? That some people were there, and they saw it, and they still doubt it. And it's like, doubt of what? Like, he's not dead anymore, and he's somehow like going back up into the sky, and you're just like, no, I don't think that's it. Like, I don't think that that's not a thing, right? It's just interesting, right? That the scripture is actually terrible propaganda for trying to get people to believe a message, right? Because it is full of God's people and people who are supposedly after God's own heart who do terrible things. Or Jesus is performing all these miracles and they still include details of people not actually believing in him. And that is what is happening here with these religious leaders, right? They know that he's doing stuff but they don't believe that he's the son of God because, well, he can't be because he's doing things in the way that they think they should not be done. And so they essentially accuse Jesus of being Satan himself. And here's how Jesus responds, verse 23. It says, so he, being Jesus, summoned them, which are the religious leaders, uh, and spoke to them in parables. So he tells them a story, essentially. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So what Jesus is saying here is he's asking these religious leaders a question. If his work which is opposed to Satan, healing people, forgiving sins, giving people grace, restoring relationships, right? These are all things that are the complete opposite of what Satan wants to do, right? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and deceive, and lie, right? Clearly what Jesus is doing is the exact opposite of what you would expect Satan to be doing. So Jesus is saying, how can I be of Satan, or how could I be Satan himself if I'm doing things that go completely against what Satan would want to have accomplished? In fact, when he uses the word in verse, 20, in verse 27, when he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first tries up the strong man, uh, he is not giving you a, a tip of how to rob somebody. 
<laughs> what he's doing is he's using wordplay that these religious leaders would have picked up on. And he's referencing a passage in Isaiah chapter 49 uh, that, that talks about this idea of binding up a strong man. And so I'll, it'll be on the screen. I'll read it for you. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 24 and 25, here's what the Isaiah the prophet writes. He says, can, they, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken, and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your children. Right? Jesus is saying is that he is the one who ultimately is doing what Isaiah is talking about here. He is the one who fights the evil one and has power and victory over the evil one, over sin and death and darkness. And he is showing this by forgiving people and healing people. And here he is not just contending with unjust people and rulers, but he's contending with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan itself. He's saying, I am here and I am overthrowing the very person that you are claiming, for, claiming that I actually am, that I am not saved, that I'm doing everything that he would not want me to do. And I have the power to do this because I have power over Satan and the demonic and all things because I am the son of God. I am God, incarnate God himself here on earth. And so this is what he is saying to the religious leaders. And then he says this, we'll continue reading uh, in verse 28. It says this, if I can flip there. <clears throat> Here we go. Uh, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And he said that because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this passage has a lot of maybe worry and anxiety for Christians. Uh, the good news is that if you actually read this in context, a lot of the, ang- a lot of the anxiousness that, we, that Christians have, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's probably at some point in your life that you've asked yourself, have I committed this unforgivable sin that Jesus talked about? Like, have I done the thing that means that I cannot be forgiven? The good news, especially in the context of what's going on here, if you're worried about that, you, you don't actually have to be, and here's why. Um, first thing Jesus says, before he says, talks about the unforgivable sin, in verse 29, or sorry, verse 28, he says, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, right? And so you need to remember that all sins are forgivable. All blasphemies, all sins against God are actually forgivable, right? And you think about Paul himself, who ends up writing about two-thirds of the New Testament, who killed Christians before he became one. He was forgiven. In fact, when you read scripture, there is not a single time, and there's a lot of people who do a lot of terrible things in this, in, throughout scripture. There's not a single time where somebody who asks God for forgiveness is not granted it. Now, there are times where people still have to live with the consequences of their actions, but they are always, always, without exception, forgiven by God. And so when we come to this passage and Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin, here's a couple of things that you need to know. First of all, it's this, that if you are worried you have sinned, ask for forgiveness. If you're worried you have sinned, ask for forgiveness. Like no matter who you are or what you have done, Jesus never denies people who have asked for forgiveness. He never says no. And so if you're worried that you have maybe done something terrible or you have done something the way it had not been done, Every time you go to God, he gives you grace. This is why at New City Church, we do confession every week. Uh, Because what we say is that God always responds to forgiveness with grace. If you've worried you've sinned, you ask for forgiveness. There's not a time that he will not reject you. In fact, in the context of what is happening here, remember, Jesus is specifically talking to religious people here. 
He's saying that the problem that the unforgivable sin is actually a problem for people who maybe consider themselves religious and not sinners. Why? Because sinners are much, whatever this is, and we'll talk about it more in a second, whatever this sin is, here's what we know. Sinners are much, are much less likely to commit this unforgivable sin than the moral and religious. Why? Because if you are self-righteous, you are often blinded. But if you are self-righteous, you would assume there's nothing you need to be asked forgiveness for. There's nothing you need to be forgiven for. And so you will not ask for it because you feel like you're good. But if you know that you're broken, if you know that you do not have it all together, and you ask God for grace, you will always be forgiven. Which makes me think, and this next point is not from the text. This is my opinion from my understanding of Scripture. But when I read Scripture and, and informed by this text as well, here's what this makes me think. That wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than self-righteousness. Now, we're very quick to talk about how bad people are and how people we need to repent, how many people stop, but we're very slow to talk about our own brokenness in our life. Wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than self-righteousness, right? Because here's the thing, right? People who maybe are, and that wickedness is bad, like sin is bad, evil is bad, absolutely. But if you find yourself doing things that are not honorable to God, right, you're much more likely uh, to be honest and be willing to repent than someone who is self-righteous. Because again, if you are self-righteous, you don't think you've done anything wrong to be repented of. You don't think you've done anything wrong to ask for forgiveness for. It's why one of the parables that Jesus talks about, where he talks about uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee talks about all the things that he has done, that he has given to the poor, that he fasts, uh, that he prays. And, and he does, everything he says is factually correct. Like he does a lot of good things. And then you have the tax collector, which was in the first century context, the worst that you could think of. In our modern context, maybe think someone who, uh, who uh, politically, ideologically is different than you or commits some terrible sin. Like in your mind, like, what's the worst thing you could do. Think of this person who does this thing all the time, going to the temple to pray. And this tax selector goes to the temple to pray. And he simply says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then what does Jesus say? That the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who is a good person, walked away justified, right? Because the tax collector actually repented and the religious leader did not because he did not think he had anything to ask for forgiveness for. Right? Wickedness poses a lesser problem than self-righteousness. Because when you and I are self-righteous, we think we've got nothing wrong. We think we have nothing to repent of, which leads to the problem that Jesus is talking about here. So from the text, it seems pretty clear. What is the actually blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Here's what it seems to be. That a persistent and unrepentant uh, resistance to Jesus is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In this context, that is what's happening here. Right? Jesus' point is that the power that he has comes from the Spirit of God himself. And so to continually deny me and to claim that I have, a, the, the, uh, the, I'm to say, have the Spirit of Satan in my, and instead of the Spirit of God is to actually deny God himself. To say that I am not God, to say that I cannot forgive sins, and to say that I am possessed by evil instead of good, well, that means that we have a problem because I am the one who is coming to forgive you of your sins. I am the one who is coming to give you grace through my perfect life, my death, my my burial, my resurrection. And so if you deny me, what this means is that you are not asking for forgiveness. Therefore, you cannot be forgiven. If you are saying that I am not who I say I am, then what I'm doing cannot be possible. That the grace and mercy of God is not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. And if I am not who I say that I am, then, you're, then we're all out of luck. There's nothing that you and I can do. And what he says here again in verse 30, that he, he says this because they claim that Jesus has an unclean spirit. They're claiming that Jesus, God himself, is actually the devil. And so they, if they continue in this way and they actually never repent, 
Well, then they have a problem because they can't be forgiven if you don't repent. That is what he's talking about here. So again, if you're worried, if I've done the thing, that means I can never be forgiven. If you ask for forgiveness, God always, not sometimes, always responds to repentance with grace. It is persistent and unrepentant resistance to Jesus. That's the problem. And that's what he's talking about with the uh, Pharisees here. And so if we continue reading in verse 31, now Jesus is going to focus back on his family and those that are close to him. And then it says this, verse 31. It says, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And so again, back to those close to him, and this at least in this instance, he's talking about family, brothers and his mother and sisters, which he didn't have sisters, but it meant like those who were close to him. Uh, so all these people who knew Jesus intimately are there to call him out. Now here's the irony that's happening. In an ancient context, what would often happen, and we saw this earlier in Mark, is that if you were in the house eating, teaching, you would have family and those close to you in the house, and the crowd would be outside the house listening to your teaching. But here... The exact opposite has happened. Uh, here, we see that the family is outside and the crowds are inside, right? The order of what we assume is supposed to happen is reversed. And not only that, it, what does it say here? That his family was looking for him. And we've mentioned this before. There are 10 times in the Gospel of Mark where people are looking for or searching for Jesus. And every single time, it has a negative connotation. Not that it's wrong to search for Jesus, but in the Gospel of Mark, every time somebody is searching for Jesus, they are searching for Jesus because they are trying to control him. They are trying to get Jesus to do what they want him to do, not what Jesus is actually supposed to do. And so they assume, right, these people are telling Jesus his family is out there, and the assumption is that Jesus must listen to his family and come out, right? If his family there, first century context, your family is everything. Even if you're an adult, even if you're an adult male, if your parents are still alive, there is this kind of assumption that they are still an authority over your life, right? And so they're there, and he is supposed to come out. Now, that is not what Jesus is going to do. And as a side note, as a reminder for us, as we've mentioned here before in the Gospel of Mark, that apprenticeship to Jesus does not consist of controlling his work, but following him. And I like the word apprenticeship maybe more than discipleship because in our context, when we hear discipleship, we often think of like Bible study or theological knowledge and not living the way of Jesus, like loving people, forgiving people, uh, honoring people. And so following Jesus, is not just about knowing things, it's more so about living what you know to be true. And so followers of Jesus, as we're going to say, does not consist of trying to get Jesus to do what you want him to do, but following and trusting him, even when you don't understand, even when you might disagree, even when you're confused and you're, and it's a really hard, and you're face a hard decision and you know what the right thing to do is, but you're like, if I make this decision, how is this going to work out? Following Jesus means we don't control his work, that we trust him. And that is what he's going to say to us as we continue. Here's his response in verse 33. Says he replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother and mother. And so Jesus here responds. And he responds in a way that you would not expect, especially in a first century context. Like in our modern you know, culture, it's like you do whatever you want. People don't tell you what to do. That is not how it worked in the ancient world, right? If your family asks you to do something, you do it. Your loyalty is to your family, not to yourself and your desires and your passions. And so he responds. Now, he's not necessarily insulting his family, but he's not affirming them either. 
right? Because he's not going to go out to them, which is what the assumption was. Right? The assumption was his family's here. We've got to stop what he's doing. He's got to talk to his family, but that is not what he does. Again, it's an important reminder for us that those who assume that they are close to Jesus, like we, we have to check ourselves to make sure we're actually honoring and following Jesus the way he's actually asking us to do it. And the flip side, those who are far from Jesus, this should give you hope that God's family, the family of God, what Jesus is doing here is he's redefining what true family is in God's kingdom. It is not those who are in the bloodline of Jesus or happen to grow up around Jesus or happen to physically know him or, or be close to him relationally. But the family of God does not include that. It's his, it's his true mother, his true brothers, his true sisters are people who actually does his will. What he's saying here is that God's family includes everyone who does God's will. And this is the encouragement that no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what gender you have or your socioeconomic status or your ethnicity, none of that excludes you from his family. And again, if you remember, or if you think about when the gospel of Mark was written, this story actually takes on significant, even more significance. So the gospel of Mark was written in the late 50s to early 60s AD, about you know, 30 years or so after all the events that take place. At the time that the gospel of Mark was written, James, one of Jesus' half-brothers, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Mary was still alive, and so she was highly respected because she's Jesus' mom. And Jude, who is also a half-brother of Jesus, also ends up writing a letter in the New Testament. And so the Jesus family is highly esteemed, right? This is not a knock about against Jesus' family. This is more so Mark being honest about what actually it looks like to be a part of the family of God. That if you want to be a part of God's family, the invitation is welcome to everyone to come and repent and to honor him and to let him change your life. And so this kind of like, in some ways flips maybe a typical attending a church on a Sunday on its head, right? So typically how this works, if you come to church on a Sunday and you're a follower of Jesus, right, it's exciting, right? You get to meet your friends, you get to talk to people, you get to sing songs, you get to worship, you get to learn the Bible, like it's going to be an encouraging time. And if you're not a Christian or if you're new, coming to church can be intimidating, right? You're like, well, I don't know the songs. Am I supposed to stand or sing? Are they going to call me out? Do I have to give money? What am I supposed to wear? What if I don't understand who Mark is? I don't, like, it can be an intimidating thing, intimidating thing to come to church, particularly if you're not quite sure who Jesus is. But today in this text, Jesus kind of flips this around, right? Today, what he's saying is that believers maybe should be uncomfortable, or maybe put another way, believers should be challenged, Right? We should be challenged to ask ourselves, are we actually following Jesus the way he is asking us to follow him? And it is unbelievers who, who should be encouraged that no matter who you are, you are welcome to participate in God's kingdom. Now, again, we have to get the order of this right, right? The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for us. That not our self-effort or our trying to do good things, that Jesus, while we were sinners, dies for us. That just like in the Old Testament, before he gives the law, he rescues and redeems Israel. In the New Testament, before he asks us to change our behavior or to do anything, he welcomes us to accept his grace and his mercy. Through his perfect life, death, and burial, and resurrection, you and I can receive the forgiveness of God. And after we have received it, there is this expectation that you are that you and I live what we know to be true. It's, grace operated a little bit differently in the ancient world and even much of the world than it does in Western culture today. So for us today, grace simply means somebody does something for you that you didn't deserve and it's like you're thankful for it and that's awesome, which that's what grace is. But in the ancient world and for much of human history and even for many cultures today, when somebody gives you a gift, there is this expectation that it is going to be reciprocated. Right, that you're actually going to do, if you're, if you're actually going to receive this gift, then you are actually going to do something for this person in return. Now, of course, following Jesus and the grace and mercy of God cannot be paid back. 
right? There is nothing we could do that would come anywhere close to what Christ has done for us. But there is this idea, and you see this in the New Testament if you look, if you look closely, that if you accept the grace of God, that you are going to live in such a way that you would honor God to say thank you for what you have done for me. And so if you're a follower of Christ this morning, here's the question for us. Where are you being self-righteous? Not that you're not saved and not that you're not forgiven, but where in your life are you doing things that maybe you know you should not be doing? Or where are you assuming that you are good because you're a Christian? Maybe you're like, well, you know, I go to church and I try to love people well, but I have this area in my life that I know I'm not honoring God in. But I'm trying to justify that by all this other good stuff that I'm doing, right? Where in your life are you not living out God's will? And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you have to understand that God is not asking you to do something first. He's, he's inviting you in, no matter what has happened to you, or no matter what you have done up until this point, that you can receive God's mercy and through the power of his spirit, not our self-effort, do we live out God's will. And the challenge in this text is that Jesus is challenging the religious leaders who are supposed to know who he is and his family who are supposed to be following him. Neither of them are doing what God is actually asking him to do or asking what Jesus is actually asking them to do. God's family includes everyone, no matter who you are, who does God's will. And he is inviting us into his kingdom, if you are a follower of Christ, to live out what you know to be true. Let's pray.